0: Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom from Valley Beit Midrash. Chag Sameach, Purim Sameach. We are thrilled today to learn some Torah, how Purim will save Judaism. How Purim Will Save Judaism, here with Reb Daniel Pellet Schwartz, who went to Maimonides in Boston, and then he learned at Yeshivat Malay Adumim um, in Israel, and Yeshivat Haratzion, known as the Gush, and um, is now in, went to Princeton, is now in Semicha at Yeshivat Chovevei Torah, the best rabbinical school in the country. Um, I'm a little biased there. And he also taught at the Berman Hebrew Academy in Maryland, and um and the pinnacle of that whole resume is that he's now teaching a valley david rash today um so we're very happy about that and we're glad you're tapping in and um how purim will save judaism so here's Reb daniel pelage and yeah so i titled this class how purim will save
1: judaism which is a very bold title i know but it's going to be a bit of a pun also so hopefully it works um a fascinating idea that um, people have thrown around. It's not totally clear what the source is of this idea, but uh, I gave in our source number one on this sheet that we have, the idea of the comparison between Purim and a different holiday. So our first source is from the first Lubavitcher Rebbe of Shneer Alman of Liadi. And in one of his writings, he says, Purim and Yom Kippur, which in Hebrew is Yom Kippurim, are essentially the same day. The meaning of Yom Kippurim is a day like Purim, Kimo Purim. So just to explain that the Hebrew there, that Yom Kippur in the alternate Hebrew pronunciation is Yom Kippurim. And obviously the day that we're celebrating today is Purim and the word Keh in Hebrew means like. And so all that comes to say is that there's this idea in Hasidic teachings that Yom Kippur is the day that is like Purim. Purim is the ultimate holy day of the year and Yom Kippur, which we usually think of as this Holy day, so awesome—the day that we, um, so many of us, come to synagogue and take so seriously. It is only like Purim; it's almost on a lower level than Purim. Um, so the question, obviously, is, what does that mean? Why is Purim the holiday that, according to this reading at least, is like the holiest day of the year? Even Yom Kippur is only similar to Purim; it's only almost like Purim. What makes Purim so special? So I think that um, the the sort of narrative that that some some people have about Purim is that it's basically a holiday about um, persecution, about bad things happening to the Jews, about being saved, and ultimately being able to um, assert ourselves and have power in the way that we didn't have at the beginning of the story. If you look at sources two and three, we see that the the plan, the plan of Haman at the beginning of the story, it says in um, Esther, Parak Gimel, Hasekiah, Gimel, chapter three, verse 13, Accordingly, written instructions were dispatched by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, massacre, and exterminate la-shmi, la-arogu, la-habed, and kola-yehudi, all the Jews, young and old, children and women on a single day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of adar which is yesterday in our calendar, today is the 14th of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. Right, so the basic idea of the Purim story, the sort of setting is that Haman gets very upset about the fact that Mordechai will not bow down to him. He gets very jealous of Mordechai, and he tries to destroy, to exterminate all the Jewish people, young and old, men, women, children, every single Jewish person on the 13th of Adar, as well as to take their possessions. And we know that at the end of the story, in chapter nine, it's a 10 chapter book. So in chapter nine, towards the end, um, when, the, when the book is sort of summarizing what ended up happening, it says, Uishnei Masar Chodesh, Uchodesh Adar, on the 13th day of Sar. On the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, so again, yesterday, when it was supposed to be, right when the king's command decree were to be executed, that the Jews were supposed to be exterminated, the very day on which the enemies of the Jews had expected to get them in, the, in their power, the opposite happened. It's an important Purim phrase, everything got flipped and the Jews got their enemies in their power. Right, The Jews, ended up controlling and um, doing that with, that to the non-Jews, which, they, which had been planned to them, talking to the Jews on the 13th day of Adar. So this narrative to put the, sort of put these two sources, sources two and three about the fact that the 13th day of Adar was supposed to be, sort of the setting of this book is that the Jews were supposed to be destroyed, completely wiped out, um, persecuted and killed on the 13th day of Adar. And then at the end of the book, it says, everything was flipped, And ultimately this is a day of celebrating Jewish survival, survival and resilience, and maybe even a little bit of um, having power over other people. And so I think that's that's one way to see the the story of Purim. I think there's one way to see the story of Purim, which is um, it's a day where, you know, like many other Jewish holidays, um, they tried to kill us, we escaped, or whatever the saying is, let's eat, Um, that kind of holiday. And maybe even a little bit of like celebration of Jewish power, they tried to kill us, um, we um, we were freed, we were saved, we controlled them a little bit, let's eat. Um, but I don't think that for me that would explain why um, Purim is such a holy day. That seems like there are many days in the Jewish calendar where um, we celebrate sort of our survival, our being freed from a miracle, and maybe even um, certain, certain days in the calendar we see God's hand in the story, we see miracles much more clearly in the narrative than we see in the days of Purim. The days of Purim is just okay, uh, a war was supposed to happen in which we lost, and then we ultimately won, um, and we gained a certain amount of power. That's a very, it's a very happy day. Um, and I think that if I titled the, this class, how Purim saved the Jews, that would be one way to see it. Save right? save the Jewish people, that's certainly true that on this day, we celebrate the fact that the Jewish people were supposed to be exterminated. Um, and that's a very resonant um, and scary idea for us. And ultimately the Jews were not exterminated and, and, and won. And that's true if that Purim saved Jews. But I think that the idea that we saw in the first source from the first Lubavitcher Rebbe or Shneir Zaman of Liadi is not about saving the power power of Purim to save just Jews, but it's something inherent in Judaism. It's a Jewish idea. There's a deeper Jewish idea going on on Purim that makes it the holiest day of the year. And the idea here that I wanna explore for the rest of our time together is what makes Purim so holy in terms of its power to revitalize and give a certain sense of meaning to Judaism, not just survival of the Jewish people, but what we stand for, what Jewish identity and what Judaism can mean for us today. Sasha Sasha asked, um, I don't understand the first source because the first source is a sort of pun that Yom Kippurim is the day, or Yom Kippur is the day like Purim, but obviously Yom Kippur is in the Bibles, in the five books of Moses, and, and Purim came much after in Jewish history. So how could it be that Yom Kippur is like a day that came much afterwards? It's a good question. Anybody here have ideas? I mean,
0: I I wonder if like Purim and Yom Kippur are later manifestations of ontological truths, meaning there's primordial truths that are later manifest. So the fact that Purim comes after Yom Kippur is irrelevant because Purim represents a divine idea which precedes humanity.
1: Yeah, I would say something very simple. I think you know, I don't have to repeat feedback because you're sitting
0: right here. Oh, okay. Right
1: here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Beresh, I think that really, uh, really I, I totally agree with that idea that it's sort of like the, it's not saying historically necessarily. I think it's saying historically that Yom Kippur was based originally on Purim because obviously that was an earlier idea, but it's more like the idea of Purim the idea of Yom Kippur maybe connected in some way. And if um, you know, if we if we are taking it sort of as uh, a more symbolic idea, then there's a deep connection between the two holidays, even if Yom Kippur obviously um, sort of came first.
0: They're Bechina they're, Achat. Um, so it says, so the altar Rebbe says, Is Bechina Achat different than K'mo? So I think are, I, is, that, is that
1: saying
0: the same thing, or are there two dimensions
1: there? I think that when I first read this source, Bechina Achat meaning essentially the same, or they share some Asha. For me, that sounded like it was almost like they're just totally the same thing. There's almost like no distinction between the two. Because
0: you translated it as
1: yeah, essentially Essentially the same, the same. right. Um, and I think that um, between saying that Purim and Yom Kippur are essentially the same, and saying that sort of Yom Kippurim is a day that is like Purim, for me, I read the second half of that as that sort of Purim is on a sort of higher level. Mm. That's often how I how I, how I learn the source. But you're right that maybe the first the first line is an even more uh, hard to understand or radical idea that they're ultimately the same idea. It's not just that Purim is holier, but that they're they're totally the same. Um, and I think that's. Um, that's something that's, that's, that's a very interesting idea that um, that I'm not going to be able to explore so much in this context. But I think that's a that's a really interesting thought. I think in the, for, for, the, for the purposes of our class, I'm going to be focusing more on the second half, which is that how could Purim be sort of like not necessarily just like Yom Kippur in terms of all of its obviously you we know, don't fast on Purim, etc. Um, but how could it be sort of an even an even holier day? It's it's a day that um, Yom Kippur in terms of the, the holiness that it brings to us can even be on a potentially lower level than Purim or how could it be modeled on Purim in some way? We know that um, obviously there are differences between the holidays, um, but maybe when we get to the end, we'll see how, just like Yom Kippur is essential to our lives as Jews,
2: Purim is um,
0: that much more essential. Sorry, one more last comment, if I may. Um, I mean, one of the insights of of Hasidism is that Judaism is about the inner life more than the outer life. Mm -hmm. And so on the outer dimensions of Yom Kippur and Purim, they're totally different. But if you look at like, what inner state are we trying to be in? It's, it's, it's that seems like that's where he's pushing right Exactly, yeah I like that a lot.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Thank you. So um, so if the purpose, if, if we've seen sort of like what makes Purim so holy, what makes it such, a, such an important day in our calendar, what makes it even potentially on the level or even beyond the level of Yom Kippur, we saw one, one sort of narrative about the fact that it's about salvation. Um, it's about the Jews being saved. But I think that there's something more. And the idea comparing it to Yom Kippur requires more than just a story of persecution and survival, I think, for me. Um, and I think that there's so much more to Purim. And I think that it ultimately can, can be a real model for how Judaism can survive and thrive, not just Jews, but Judaism can survive and thrive in the 21st century. Um, so I wanna, one, one of my favorite um, Talmudic passages is um, in source four in the Talmud and Masachat Shabbat. So and I should have given a, another source in the source sheet, but there's a, there's a passage verse in the Megillah, in the book of Esther that says, that the Jewish people accepted, how is it translated here? The Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them. So in context, this verse is talking about the fact that the Jews accepted and took upon themselves the holiday of Purim. But this Talmud is, this, this passage from the Talmud is going to play with that phrase by the Jews being ki mu accepting and taking upon themselves something. And it's going to take it to a whole new level, almost like accepting and taking upon themselves all of Judaism in the times of Purim. So if we thought that we accepted Judaism in our narratives about um, the the times of the giving of the Torah at Har Sinai at Mount Sinai, we we might've thought that we accepted the Torah at the times of Sinai when when the Torah was given. This Talmudic passage wants to disagree and say that we actually accepted all of Judaism on Purim. The Gemara cites additional homiletic interpretations on the topic of the revelation at Sinai. The Torah says, and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the lowermost part of the Mount. And this works a little bit better in Hebrew. The Hebrew in the, the the Mount Sinai story says the Jewish people stood hahar, which means something like at the base of the mountain. But that word tachtit can also mean under the mountain. Okay, so that word can mean the Jewish people accepted the Torah at the base of the mountain, but also maybe under the mountain. What does that mean? Rabbi Amar Barchama Barchama Barchasa said the Jewish people actually stood beneath the mountain. And the verse teaches that the Holy One, blessed be he, overturned the mountain above the Jews like a tub and said to them, if you accept the Torah, excellent. And if not, there will be your burial." Any reactions to that? We'll stop in the middle of the source. Any reactions to that idea of the Jews actually stood under the mountain and God said, if you don't accept my Torah, you will die right here. Any reactions? Jasmine said, that it's a, it's a bit of a disappointing idea because we, we, we like to think that we accept Judaism because we love it out of will. That was always a, sort of a willing contract between our nation and God, the idea of accepting the Torah. And in fact, there are ideas in the rabbis in Midrashim about the fact that God offered this covenant to every single other nation. and We're the ones who said yes. So how does that work with the idea that it was forced upon us? It's a very challenging idea. So Nick said that uh, something something that I think is, is really interesting that there, there may be a little bit of beauty in the idea that there is something um, maybe that feels like a little bit coercive or that forcing us, just not in the sense that um, it's oppressive in any way, but in the sense that there's there's that constant push and pull factor of sort of things that are pushing us to Judaism and things that are sort of making us feel like a sense of obligation. I think that's,
0: that's a really interesting idea. Anybody else? I was just gonna say, um, I don't know that we have to read it as punitive. Hmm. Um, it, it, the obvious read is, if you don't accept it, I'll kill you. But the other way to read it is, um, you'll die if you don't accept this because it's a redefinition of life right like you can choose life or you can choose to not be alive by affirming a deeper commitment Mm -hmm. moral spiritual commitment and so yeah you will not be alive if
1: you don't choose this in a
0: sense that's beautiful
1: i really like that if this were a a shavuot cheer i would definitely want to go that (laughs) direction um, no, I think that's really, really nice. she's really saying that there's something about, not about literally being killed, but potentially about locking the sort of spiritual life that we're looking for. And God is telling us that Mount Sinai, that if we don't accept this, uh, this religion, this, this Torah, then, um, there'll be something locking in our life. We'll be locking a sort of spiritual life. I think that's-
0: We have a question from live stream. if I may. Sure. Um, our friend, AJ Frost, what is the biggest misunderstanding about Purim? Do you feel that too many people think it's just a day of levity? It seems to have a much darker edge to it so mm. if you want to take that now we'll come back to that
1: interesting interesting thank you that's from aj 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 thank you so much for that question um yeah i think there's something much deeper to Purim as we're seeing here i mean i think that there certainly is a levity aspect to it and um i think that we're gonna what we're exploring in this class ultimately is why are we so happy why is this a day again if yom kippur is a day that is sort of like the holiest in some ways happiest day of the year the days of the highest spiritual highs on Purim, we are extremely happy. It's sort of like that inner state is even elevated more on Purim and we do so through um, external means, through eating and drinking and having a great time and dressing up. Um, but why are we so happy? Why is it such a wonderful day? Um, and I think that the, a darker edge, I, I think that there is something maybe darker. I'm not sure about dark, but something very meaningful we saw the idea of just uh, of, of the Jewish survival that happened in the day. and that's very important. to emphasize the, fact that the, the Jews survive. But I think that what we're getting at here is is what what makes it such a such a seriously spiritual day, and hopefully we're going to get to that um, as we continue discussing. So thank you for that question. So at least on, on face value, before um, Rav Shmuley's beautiful uh, reading of the, of the source, this was a, a very difficult idea on, on, the, on the times the times of Sinai. The Jews were were sort of in some ways coerced to accept um, the Torah and their their, their Jewish identity. And then Rava responds in the source. Rava says, um, Amarav, Amarav Achabar Yaakov, Mikan, Modar, Ravah, the Rav Achabar Yaakov says, from here, there's a substantial caveat to the obligation to fulfill the Torah. Basically, one rabbi said, okay, this story that happened at Mount Sinai, it was kind of coerced. The other rabbi responds, like, okay, then there's never any reason for a Jew to feel obligated to be Jewish. If we are ultimately forced into this as a people, then, like, why should we ever be Jewish? A contract that you're forced into is not a valid contract, right? Um, and then Rava says, even so, they again accepted it willingly in the times of Ahasuerus, as it is written, the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them. And he taught the Jews ordained, when the verses says the Jews ordained that they accepted what they had already taken upon themselves through the coercion at Sinai. The idea here, again, playing with the words in this verse in the Gilat Esther, is that Yehudim, when the Jews accepted something in the times of of Purim, it wasn't just accepting the days of Purim. There's actually a full voluntary acceptance of their Jewish identity and their Jewish religion in the times of uh, Mordechai and Esther. So the idea here in the source is that there potentially was something coercive, something that felt out of our control, something that felt maybe um, that we didn't even necessarily want to do about our Jewish identity, our Jewish faith and practice in earlier generations. But Purim is the day that we accept it willingly on our own terms right? I think that there's something really beautiful about the fact that in the whole book of Esther, the name of God is never mentioned once. There's never anything that feels like God is forcing himself, that God is forcing God's self on us on this day. It's something that we really have to find for ourselves. Our spirituality on the day of Purim is something that we ultimately have to cultivate within ourselves and we have to choose. Purim is about, it's a holiday of no revealed miracles. We're not in the land of Israel. We're in diaspora. We're scattered and dispersed. We don't see God and we certainly don't feel God's coercive power. And yet there's this beauty and power to that. Maybe even more than holidays, we celebrate open miracles where God sort of showed us things directly. This is a day in which we accept our Jewish identity freely. And I think that for me, that's the first reason. If Purim will save Judaism for us in the 21st century, that's sort of the first model that I went to. Beyond the survival issue, which is important, that the first reason why I think Judaism is Purim is such an important day for saving Judaism in the 21st century is that I think that so many of us feel this nowadays, that um, ideas of coercion, of being in community because we're forced to, like it was sort of maybe in medieval times or in previous generations, ideas that we have to do this because we feel like it's, there's no option and maybe external factors, maybe a government, maybe a foreign leader, or maybe even um, rabbinic authorities are forcing us to do, to do Jewish is not as relevant for many of us nowadays. And this is a day that is about accepting our Jewish identity on our own terms, in our own way. And that's why I think this is, um, that's. Purim can have immense spiritual power, uh, maybe even more than Yom Kippur, but that's one of three. So
2: yeah, Jasmine. A lot of other holidays that we have in Judaism are like, you can't do this type of work, you can't do these things. And so in order to make Purim special, it's more about the things that you are like proactively Mm -hmm. doing and choosing to do and choosing to engage in as opposed to the things that you're refraining from.
1: I love that. But on Purim, as opposed to other days where, where some Jews refrain from from doing sort of work or using electronics or whatever on Purim, it's a day where there's no real restrictions. And there's only positive things. We have, you know, commandments that we do, we read the Megillah, we have a festive meal. But there's no prohibition on Malacha on doing work. Um, and there's there's really no prohibitions at all on Purim, and that's mm-hmm. sort of a day of just positivity and accepting things positively upon ourselves. So that's that's one model why I think that Purim can really be a, a powerful spiritual force in Judaism that's maybe often ignored. Um, I think a second reason how Purim could say Judaism for us in the 21st century is that it is a day of uh, recognizing the power of diaspora, of Jews being dispersed uh, in many different places and uh, decentralized Judaism. And we see that in, uh, in, in, in source number five, in Esther chapter three, verse eight, Haman then said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the other peoples in all the provinces of your realm, whose laws are different from those of any other people and who do not obey the king's laws. And it is not in your majesty's interest to tolerate them." So obviously this verse, this passage, is in the context of Haman trying to show why the Jews don't deserve to survive, don't deserve to be alive because they're so different. Um, that's obviously Haman's problem in the story is that he can't deal with that. But um, the idea that the Jews are somehow united in this story and yet don't need to be all in the same physical place. The idea of the Jews having their own that they have their own identity, their own values, their own practices. And yet that can happen even when we're in different continents, even when we're in from uh, Scottsdale, Arizona to Kiev, Ukraine, and everywhere in between. And of course, um, in, Israel, in the land of Israel, that we can be connected um, despite the fact that we are in exile. And this is, this is a day that unlike many of our other holidays that happened when we were all living in the same place with maybe the Jewish government, this is a day that recognizes the fact that some of us live in places with uh, maybe in the state of Israel, the like Jewish state, but many of us live all around the world and it recognizes the diversity of Jewish communities and it celebrates that. And yet there's this connection that even though we're diverse, we're not separated. We have, again, we have this connection of our values, of our practices of, in the, in the word of Megillah, the Dutch, the, our, our religion, that's something that really, really connects us, that recognizes the diversity of different Jewish communities that bring so much, each Jewish community can bring so much as their own culture, their own foods, their own practices, and yet that we're all connected. And that tension I think that we're feeling nowadays between having a diaspora that has rich and diverse and we celebrate that, and also trying to maintain unity. That's the second reason why I think that Quorum can be a really successful model for how we think about our own um, very Jewish communities around
0: the world today. So, uh, so I love that. And can I push back on the celebration of diaspora? Sure. So to be sure, I did write an article that. That argued that the diaspora is the new center. Okay. <laughs> um, but let me be a big Zionist. Let me be a big Zionist for a moment. Okay. And a big Zionist, we would say, um, ah, in the diaspora, one little poor, one little, a, a little, um, what do you call poor? A lot. Uh, one little lot can destroy everyone. Right. We have no power. We have no control. Like we can be destroyed so easily. So it isn't 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 a, a main read of the Megillah that actually like the dangers of living in the diaspora where we're at the whims of foreign tyrants, right? And thus the argument should be, yes, it's nice we have different customs that were dispersed, but ultimately we need power to, to control our own destiny. And, and we need an
1: army to, to control that. And we should all move you know, back to the land. So that brings me really nicely into the third point. I think that yeah. that is very true. And I'm, for a Yoma, it's my last, i think have to be saying something, uh, maybe yeah. emphasizing a different aspect. Yeah, I think that, uh, again, we're living with that tension nowadays of having our own state and state of Israel. And yet many Jews still live uh, in many different communities. and. Um, I think that it's that it's important that we recognize both maybe the, the power and the importance of the state of Israel, but also not ignoring the fact that our diaspora is rich and vibrant and that we can also contribute to each other. The Land of Israel to us, looking at them maybe for a sense of security that we always have a place, and yet also um, recognizing that that diversity that comes from from, from exile. But absolutely. And I think that there's a lot there, but I want to move on to I think that there's there's a model of um, Jewish resilience and um, standing up for ourselves and being involved in the diaspora in a way that's not powerless. And that's the third aspect, I think, of uh, why Purim. And so it's such a wonderful way to think about as a model for 21st century Judaism. That's in Source 6. So at the end of the story, Mordechai has um, a lot of power. He becomes second in the land. For Mordechai was, this is in chapter 9, for Mordechai was now powerful in the royal palace, and his fame was spreading through all the provinces. The man Mordechai was growing ever more powerful. So on the one level, Mordechai just gets into the government, right? Jews um, being active in, in government and having a lot of influence in society, great. So the Jews end up not being powerless in society. right? They end up actually having a lot of influence, but I think it's not a coincidence that Mordechai is the person who ends up being involved in the government. Mordechai is not somebody who, there, I think there's many ways that we can think about, um, again, if we're in diaspora, there's many ways to think about how to make sure that we have power, that we have influence, that we're not, um, that no atrocities ever committed against us, um, being involved in government and in public life. One is to sort of like assert ourselves as a special interest, basically not thinking about serving the, the, the country and the democracy that we're in, but just sort of thinking of our own needs. But that's one way to, to, to ensure Jewish survival and Jewish influence in society is just, you know, what, what's good for us? What's in it for us? Um, and that's one way to think about um, Jewish influence in, in, the, in the societies that we're in, in the diaspora. There's another way to think about it where it's like, um, you know, let's forget our identity for a second. When we're involved in... Um, when we're involved in uh, public life and we're involved in government, we want to do that to protect ourselves, but we have to sort of forget our own identity because we're in a, a host country now. Let's forget our values. Let's do what they need us to do. There's those two kind of extremes of thinking of ourselves as a special interest without really serving the needs of the general community. And there's also like kind of full assimilation and sort of saying, when I'm here, I need to make sure that I survive by being exactly like everybody else. And Mordechai is exactly not either one of those two things. Mordechai is the person who refused to bow down, who refused to let go of his values and bow down to what he thought was immoral and unjust and against his truth of Judaism. Mordechai is the person who lived his full self and did not allow himself to be totally swallowed up by his host culture and forget his identity on the one hand. And yet he also wasn't only in it for him and didn't give himself as a special interest, because we know that one of the reasons why Mortify was able to be given this power is that earlier in the story he looked out for the government. When there was a threat against the government, an assassination attempt, Mordechai is the person who says, "Hey, uh, government, there's actually an assassination attempt going on. I want to make sure that we're we're in this together as a partnership. And I want to protect you. I'm not just in this for me. You know, if it were just about me, why do I care that Machshirat is going to?" be killed. Mordecai had the interest of the general community of every single person in the in in Persia in, in his mind, and he really cared about other people. And also, he didn't let go of his own values and his own identity. He was fully Jewish and also somehow tried to be really have the, the interest of, of every person in the community in his mind. And I think that that's really a response to that idea of, well, we're really brought up, like, you know, are we just celebrating the fact that we're powerless in diaspora? Don't we have Israel now? What's, what's the point of celebrating that? I think that we do celebrate Israel. We do celebrate when we have our own state and our own power, but there is also a, a, an additional supplementary model that we think about on Purim, which is how to live, um, how to have influence, and how to be involved in our general communities as Jews in other, in other countries that are, that are not Israel. And I think that the way to do it is to be like Mordecai, and so many of us need that message. of We shouldn't be hiding away, being a special interest, only thinking about our own needs. We also don't need to say that you know our own identity doesn't matter at all. We need to stand up for what we believe in and be full Jews and also be full Americans in the other countries that we're in and really look out for the well the well-being of, of all people. And those things don't contradict in the story of of Mordecai and the story of Purim. And I don't think they should contradict for us either. Mordechai can be a model. Cindy said it's that that both of these extremes of sort of like full maybe assimilation or and, and full sort of like cloistering and only caring about ourselves are are bound to fail. This is this is the way to can ensure the success. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I want to repeat
0: that one. How do we embrace this, this understanding and tolerance towards other cultures as well? That when Muslims come to America, mm-hmm. if Mexicans come to America, Asians come, that we don't say, be American. Right. It's like, we want you to be what you are, where you came from right. and be American. Right. And it's very easy to feel like, oh, if you're a real American, you're going to assimilate. But if we're going to say about us, we want to be American and we want to be Jews. Like we should say that about all cultures. I love that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So this is more about that's, that's even a more global or a, a, a more global message from him That if the if this third message of Perim that we had is to be fully ourselves and also fully American, what can that mean in terms of thinking of that for other people? To to not to not demand of people that they assimilate in any way, but that they maintain their full selves while also being um, fully American. I
2: really like that. Conscience of of accepting other folks. So When I look at that that concept of saying, I I don't see color, like, well, you should, you shouldn't be right? You should see the beauty in color, right? Right. Um, Same thing with her Judaism, like, oh, maybe like I'm not gonna be uh, in in Jewish community, I'm only gonna try to support outside figures instead of saying, Let me support my own Jewish community while accepting also that I'm gonna um, step out of the Jewish community and accept other communities and and support other communities. Yeah,
1: I love that. Eddie Eddie was saying that. Um, this can be sort of a way to think about when people say, like, I don't see color. That's not something that you want to be saying, that we want to be saying that we fully embrace and accept um, diversity and difference and people's own identities. Um, and that, that's not the way to, that's not the, the model, at least that we're seeing right here, of um, of being, in a, of being in, a, in, a, in a society together. We don't try to ignore differences. We really try to celebrate differences. And
2: that's something that I really... I have a question. I don't have an answer to this, but how do, how do we understand this in light of the idea of, of questioning the Jews dual loyalty and kind mm. of to be trusted and if, if if we are looking out for our people does that undermine people's trust in us like mm. a, an American's trust?
1: Interesting um, so Julia brought up uh, the problem of dual loyalty that if we are um, affirming our own identity and looking out for our own as well as trying to maintain um, a full citizenship and influence and um, care for American society is not going to be a dual loyalty issue that we're sort of looking at for ourselves. And I guess I would turn back to Eddie. I think what Eddie was saying that's a model for every community. That um, communities are wonderful and powerful and meaningful. And um, I don't think that we should accuse anybody who has care for their own community and also deep concern for the broader society to be have dual dual loyalty. I think that's the nature of each person needs their own faith community, their own national um, uh, community, whatever it is that that brings them a sense of closeness and close-knit and um, caring a lot about those who, who share your values and your background. I, I, I think that as long as, again, like Mouli and Eddie are pushing us to think about other communities as well, as long as it's not, oh, only we can do this, then we won't be accused of this world, Right, so Jasmine said that even if we don't, even if we don't think of somebody as belonging to a certain sort of like subgroup or faith community, each person by nature of being a human being has their own family, has their own people who they're close to. Every person has certain circles and they feel a certain sense of kinship and closeness to. And we should just acknowledge
0: that and, and celebrate that and affirm that and allow these person to do that. There's also, there's an interesting conversation to have about proximity. Hmm. Like if you look at academics, the trend today is like, you should uh, be prox- very proximate and, and, uh, and um, connected to be the head of a department. So if you're the head of black studies, you shouldn't be white. If you're the head of women's studies, you shouldn't be a man. If You're head of queer studies, you shouldn't be straight. It's interesting enough, in Jewish studies, there's a huge number of Gentiles and Gentiles who lead the departments, and that's a different conversation. And actually, the Jewish studies academics want that because they say, no, this is not religious. This is academic. So Jewish studies is kind of an anomaly within that paradigm. But like, don't we want people to be, have a stake in the game? You know? And it's so we did a program was it a week ago or two weeks ago on Kissinger? Is that how long ago was that? Like I was like a year ago, right? Yeah. So on Kissinger, Kissinger, Nixon's questioning of his dual loyalties. How could he be involved with Israel? He's Jew, you know. And but Mordecai is the Kissinger. I mean, Mordecai is the number two, or Joseph in Egypt. Like this is the number two, you know, in command. And um, does it help or hurt to have like interests? And as Jasmine says, like, like dual loyalties. We have like hundreds of loyalties. Like we're connected to people. We have histories and. Values like how could you ever strip that from anyone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or like who's the head of the who's the head of the Department of Homeland Security now? What's the guy's name? Uh, Merrickus. He's he's Jewish, but he's also Mexican or Cuban. Cuban. So like, how could you have someone defending national interests who also has an immigrant background? Like, what does that even mean? Like, don't you want leading, leading, leading that? Yeah. And it's a question about juries. Like, would you have a jury that like there's a whole jury scandal? Sean is like in jury duty right now so like six months of jury duty, and so like they have to grill you of like. You have any biases of course i have biases
2: you know what i mean we don't have any biases so on a sports level if I'm, if I'm talking about soccer let's say each city has its own soccer team individually i can support different cities but maybe to be to feel in community with everybody else i still have my own individual interests of like individual players individual uh, teams but then when the national mm. team plays I feel kinship with every single person supporting the national team. Mm-hmm. I still have individual loyalties to specific players and teams, but then on a bigger, grander scale, I'm with everybody supporting the bigger, grander nation. I would just also suggest that maybe at the extremes, like the very right wing groups, whether Jewish or Christian, use the system to get what they want, what's good for them, without really regard to everyone,
0: Mm -hmm. yes. Oh, that's interesting that you bring that up because it almost makes it feel like, um, you know how people, sometimes white folks are like, I don't have a race, I'm normal.
2: You know (laughs) what
0: I mean? It's kind of like, oh, if I'm a white nationalist, if I'm a extreme right, like, I don't have biases. I just want the American thing. I want the white national thing. (laughs) Like, that's a bias, you want your bias too, right? Right. Okay, so so to to
1: do a bit of review and wrap up, before we see our final source. Um, We have this idea that, that if, if Yom Kippur is the day that many of us think of, that, that spiritual day, the day that sort of like shapes our whole year, the day it's the holiest day of our year, um, there are sources that say that Yom Kippur is only a, a shadow of or some aspect of Purim, which is an even greater day in some way. And that's a surprising idea. We're trying to figure out what makes Purim so holy that can be compared even to, to Yom Kippur. Um, what makes Purim so special? And so we said that certainly we can't ignore and we have to take seriously the, the survival um, narrative that goes on in the in the Purim story, the survival of the Jews, like the fact that Jews are saved, very, very important. And also there is something here that can save not only Jews, but I wanted to claim that can save Judaism, for Judaism that can thrive and be really successful and be eyes wide open uh, in the 21st century and be, be very attractive for, for modern people. And I think that there's three parts of the story. We saw some sources in both the text of the, of the book of Esther itself and also some texts from the rabbis in the Talmud, that three aspects of the story of Purim that, that make it the holiest and most important day for, for me, at least, um, to, to craft my own Jewish identity. One of them is that um, today that um, we don't have coercion, we have choice. Um, this is a positive choice that each person needs to take. Um, nobody's forcing us to be Jewish, nobody's forcing our Jewish identity on us, nobody's forcing us to do something that we don't want to do. It's a day that we each affirm our own Judaism in our own way um, and find meaning in that ourselves. Um it's a sort of self-creative way, and I think in a way, I think it's very um, speaks to us a lot in the twenty first century. The second idea is, um, on the one hand, understanding that there are um, there are miracles in the state of Israel, but also that um, it really recognizes diversity and um, different different cultures and subgroups within Judaism in the in the diaspora that we have. And it recognizes the certain uh, certain amount of power that we have from being, on the one hand, and Mifurad, scattered and dispersed around the world, and also being able to not lose our sense of unity around, again, not just survival, but around our values. Our dot is the word that the book of Esther uses. Our values, our practices, um, and our beliefs are things that we stand up for and things that unite us. And that's intention, but also in beautiful conversation with with the diaspora and the different subgroups that we have. So again, we have the fact that it's not coercive, the fact that we choose this ourselves, that each one of us can find meaning in Judaism on our own terms, and the fact that we recognize all the different beautiful subcultures and diverse groups within Judaism, and that were united, <clears throat> not just by, uh, in the words of Rabbi Soloveitchik Sol of the uh, last century, not just by fate, not just what by what people make us do or what people persecute us, but also by destiny, by what we stand for, by our values. Um, and I think the last thing that we saw is within that diaspora, what does it mean to not be powerless, to be a you know a part of the society, to be um, to to maintain power and influence in a way that's not self-interested. And that Mordecai uh, can, be a, can be a real model for us in terms of how to think as um, American Jews, as Jewish Americans, um, and from people who live around the world in Jewish communities, what it means to, to not forgo your Jewish identity, to be fully Jews and also involved in society in a way that's contributing and not just taking. I think that's, that's what Mordechai shows us. Um, I think that that's why in the seventh source, there's another idea about Purim, that all the holidays will be canceled. This is a Midrash. All of the holidays will be canceled in the future, but Purim will never be canceled. I think that ultimately, that's because Purim is a day that's so much about reinterpreting, reimagining, seeing that we are in many different places, that we move around a lot. Judaism is very dynamic on Purim. It's about recognizing where we are right now. We have a certain ideal of being all together, of a messianic time, but Purim is a day that they weren't in the messianic times. They weren't all united in one Jewish state with one Jewish uh, code of law, all living the same way. It was a, it was a recognition that things are messy and things are always dynamic and changing. And we have to accept Judaism upon ourselves, not in terms of coercion, not only in terms of survival, but also in terms of what's meaningful to each one of us, what connects to each one of us um, and our values and our practices. And uh, that's why Purim is eternally, I think um, in every era and every scenario um, is going to be relevant and meaningful and perhaps even as holy as the day of young people itself. I don't
0: understand that. You unpack know, that a little more? Sure, yeah. Like why, why Purim would be so rare and exceptional in that regard that the others would fall away, but there's something necessary for Purim in the Messianic era? Sure,
1: I mean, I think that um, Purim, I think especially in the Messianic
2: era, I maybe mean,
0: to add one aspect,
1: especially in the Messianic era, when we are going to have um, you know, in, in, in traditional Jewish thought, the Messianic era is a time that we all come together, that things are um, all united, maybe all in one state, all in one land, all with one leader. Um, we need to maintain an aspect even in that ultimate goal that we're achieving of trying to be more united, uh, of celebrating our unity, of celebrating our commitment together, there has to still be an aspect of the program that never gets forgotten. It will eternally be relevant because it's a day of, it's a day of taking our own, our, having our own stake in our Judaism, of taking an active role in our Judaism, of thinking about our diversity, not just our unity thinking about what things mean to me as a person, how I can accept Judaism, not out of a sense of I need to, even if that's maybe part of it, but a sense of, I want to, what does this mean to me? And so maybe specifically in the messianic era, when maybe some of the other holidays will be like, of course, like we're all united, we're all together, we're all doing uh, what we need to be doing. Purim is the one day it's gonna be like, oh wait, but even in in times that we feel united, that we feel like we've gotten sort of our goals and we've gotten our unity to not forget diversity, to not forget um, making meaning ourselves.
2: Keeping Purim is a way of of preventing um, uh, those times from becoming like Gan again, and people forgetting, not realizing how beautiful it is, and and trying to seek out. And the, what if we have Purim and we remember where we came from, the struggles that we had, what it was like being in diaspora or being in these times? We can we can appreciate and recall like why why this is so special. And
1: yeah, amazing. So Julia brought up another point, which is that it's also really important to remember if we if we sort of. Get to the goal that we're getting to this messianic era, and we forget uh, our, di- our diaspora experience. That's sort of missing something, we're going to be missing something really important from our experience. Um, and this is a again, the idea that I brought up was maybe that even within the messianic times, we have to maintain an aspect of purim in our life. Then, um, and Julia brought up that we also have to remember um, the times that we had before. So,
0: you know, picking up on Jasmine said earlier around there being no low tasses, there, there being no prohibitions on purim. I wonder if that's also a dimension of this, because like one read of the messianic era is that human nature remains the same, but like there's other things that have changed. But another is that human nature fundamentally changes. And the prohibitions are based on the idea that we have like bad desires. We have self-absorption, we have like greed. And so we have to like restrain ourselves. But in a messianic era, like we can, where we're liberated from like those baser instincts, like there's just that celebratory dimension. So
1: Absolutely. Maybe you're familiar. that brings us back to our first source. Maybe.
0: If we're comparing
1: Yom Kippur and Purim, maybe Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the, of the year when we have certain oh, desires God, and distractions nice. and bodily needs that really distract us from, um, from our holiness, from our, from our values, from our contemplation most days of the year. And that's the holiest day that we have maybe now. Maybe we can say Yom Kippur is the holiest day that we have now when we have a lot of distractions going on and we need to sort of like force ourselves to ignore our, all of our physicality for a day to really be holy. Whereas Purim can be a day when we're not going to be in a holier state. We're gonna, those things are going to be irrelevant in the first place. We're not going to want need to do the, the same things that we're going to need to do. According, according to some readings of the Messianic era, we're not going to need to eat and drink and be distracted by things going on in the world. And so we just focused on the, on the positivity of Purim and accepting our Jewish identity that way. Mm. really like
0: that. Uh, one last one last thought there, which is that, that we're all different. We always think everyone wants positive reinforcement. But some of us grow through like critique. And some of us grow through positive reinforcement. So some of us are like Yom Kippur Jews where we need to be like, I'm not doing well enough. I'm not doing well enough. I gotta do better. Right. We need boot camp. And some of us like need like the, that positive reaffirmation all the time, like you're great, you're great, you're great. And like even just thinking about education, people are different like that. So for some, maybe their highest manifestation is pure, Like, I just want all joy. Right. And other people, they're like, they're really in the Yom Kippur, like, I want to reflect on like how I can be better. Right. Right. And like. I'm obviously, all of us are both of those, but maybe we're, it's, a, it's a time for us to reflect on which one are we more.
2: You know, absolutely. In yeah, absolutely. Good. So, uh, this is Rev <laughs> Daniel
0: Pellet Schwartz here from New York, from Boston, here in Scottsdale, Arizona. We had a great day learning. Uh, watch, watch him. He's going to be one of the great rabbis of our time. Thank you so much for joining us, Purim Saman. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Madrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.